Many individuals try to find success on a daily basis. But what defines this success? Where does it come from? When you find a passion in your life and pursue this passion, everything can come together to form success. This is Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. Our guests will motivate you to take the next step to your success. Now, here's your host, David Wallach. Good morning, y'all. Welcome to a unique episode of Taking Care of Business. Um, During the first season of my show, Taking Care of Business, uh, we have met people from different industries, discussed various angles of uh, starting a business, running a business, growing your business, and many other aspects of the business world. Today, as I mentioned in my opening sentence, we're going to deal with other type of business. We're going to talk about personal business, something that bothers you as a person as, and is preventing you from moving forward with your life until you get to the bottom of things. Stop and think for, for a moment. How many times have you used in, in a personal contact with family or friends phrases such as, uh, I'll take care of it, or let's get down to business, or maybe let me take care of, the bus- of this business? My guest today took care of a personal business so she can move on with her life. My guest today is Lori Taylor. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, David. Thank you for being my guest. Uh, where do I catch you this uh, wonderful morning? I'm in Dana Point, California this morning, and thank you for having me. Oh, Dana Point. I miss this place. I was there with my wife at the San Regis a few years ago. What's the weather like? Well, I have to say it's a beautiful California <laughs> morning. <laughs> the yeah. sun is already up, and I, I can see the blue ocean from my home. I'm very fortunate. Yeah, rub it in, because here in Calgary... <laughs> It's uh, 32 Fahrenheit, about zero, and uh, the warmest it will be today will be 44 or 8 degrees Celsius. So, yeah, keep on rubbing it in. Uh, <laughs> I met Lori for the first time over a year ago during the process of my son's marriage. Uh, Lori is an all-time friend of my son's mother-in-law. However, it was only this summer that uh, she shared with me the incredible journey she went through, or maybe I should say how she took care of business. And this was hard business to deal with. So Lori is the author of a book named The Accidental Truth, What My Mother's Murder Investigation Taught Me About Life. And we will get into the book and to the journey later. But first, Lori, you know, before we start diving into the um, journey, the book, and and what you kind of, uh, you know, investigated and found, um, let's, you know, learn a little bit about Lori uh, as a person. Um, so where are you originally from, Orange County? I was born uh, actually in California. I'm a native Californian, and I grew up just south of Los Angeles, uh, about 45 minutes drive north of where I live now. And uh, I have only lived out of the state uh, in Texas when I went to school, when I went to college there, and came back because it's a beautiful place to live. I feel very fortunate. I see. So you're a California, Californian, you know, all, all the way. That's correct. <laughs> uh, share with us about your family, siblings, parents. What what did they do? Uh, how did you grow up? Yes, I grew up in a, a sleepy little beach community. Uh, very you know middle class, very easy, very fortunate life. Uh, my parents uh, were married a few times. I'm part of a blended what we call here a Brady Bunch family, and I'm the youngest of five. And um, we had four girls and one boy. And I, I had an, an interesting uh, journey. My parents were very hard workers. They didn't come from very much, uh, but they worked very hard and taught us about, uh, about work ethic and also taught us about dreaming uh, to be something beyond what we were, what our station you know, in life was. And um, as the youngest of five, I was the only one to be fortunate enough to graduate from university and uh, and see something a, a bit different. So living outside of California, having a different different view uh, was a wonderful experience for me. Um, and of course, it brought me to you. I'm being in college. <laughs> <laughs> uh, having uh, met uh, uh, Mitzi in college and, uh, and our, your families being joined uh, brought us together. And I'm very thankful for that. So let's go back a little bit to your childhood. You said that your parents uh, taught you how to dream. So as a child, did you dream that you'll be one day an author? Or it wasn't high on the list? 
No, it was honestly, David, it wasn't something that I imagined. I was always writing or trying to write stories and journaling and and things like that. Uh, My mother was a bit of an armchair psychologist. She read a lot of self-help. She was, uh, I believe she was on a on a search for answers her whole life. And she would sit me down. I think it was somewhat of her protege. I I loved listening to all of her stories and all of the information that she'd gathered through reading books. And uh, she was a big believer in uh, if you can see it, you can achieve it. So imagining what you can be uh, and would take you on this journey of being what you imagined you would be. And uh, it was very helpful in my life to remind myself that I didn't have to be exactly what I was today. I could be something else tomorrow with education, with, you know, with hard work, uh, with trial and error. Uh, I could be something different. I see. And, and growing up, uh, were you kind of, uh, what kind of a kid were you or were a young adult, uh, active sports, uh, active with sports, uh, bookworm? What kind of uh, childhood you had? I, I was a bit of a combination. Uh, I tell people I, I, I'm, I'm an introvert by nature, but an extrovert by adaptation. Uh, so, uh, so naturally a quiet child, uh, a thinker, a, a reader, a writer, but I was also loved being outside. I, anything I could do, gymnastics. I was a cheerleader uh, all through, actually through college. I coached cheerleading uh, at university. And so I... For me, um, I think intuitively I knew that that exercise and being outside in nature was something that was good for mental health. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I did it quite often, but uh, I was also a bit cerebral as well and enjoyed my, my reading and my writing. Uh, so you, you mentioned that you uh, went to a school in Texas. So why Texas? Why SMU? I mean, California has such a variety of schools and good schools. What What kind of made you make the decision to go to a different state and a kind of different university? It was honestly, David, it was quite by accident. Um, having not been prepared to go to university, I went to California have a very strong junior college system. So the first two years of college, uh, I went and I worked full time and I knew that I wanted to finish. I thought I would go to USC my whole life. And I have a chance meeting um, of some friends who became lifelong friends who worked in the field of sports marketing. Uh, They asked me a question. I was 18 years old and they said, well, why would you go to school in California? Your family lives there. You can live there the rest of your life. Why wouldn't you see something different? And I didn't have a good answer for them. And they happened to be from Texas. And they said, well, uh, have you ever thought about schools in Texas? And I, within two weeks, I was on a plane and I landed there in Dallas, went to SMU. And I thought uh, very similar in, in culture size. The business school was very strong, like USC. And it was an opportunity for me to actually see something different than what I had grown up with. I see. Um, what was your major? I was a business major, uh, marketing, and I had a minor in Spanish, always fascinated by travel and language and so I really really enjoyed that now you, I understand you said that you're a cheerleader and cheerleader uh, instructor um, I was I was told you were a pom-pom girl that's how well <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, well that's so dear generally speaking people don't know the difference so cheerleaders do the gymnastics and the stunting and pom-pom girls are more dancers so yes I was as a pom-pom girl. Um, and so my background is, is more in dance than it is actually in the, the cheerleading and the stunting. I see. And, and from what I understand or discovered in our research, uh, you ended up one day in a hospital after an accident. <laughs> I did. That's some great research there, David. As an investigator, I'm super <laughs> proud of that, uh, that effort. Yes. Um, my spent my 20th birthday uh, eight days in Lubbock General Hospital, I unfortunately was trampled by uh, the mascot of an opposing team of Texas Tech University, and uh, I blindsided, actually. I was standing on the field, and um, in a freak accident, uh, someone had asked me, uh, their hat had blown off onto the field, and I was handing it up to them, and 
the opposing team scored, and their tradition was that they ran their mascot, which was a thoroughbred horse, from <laughs> end zone to end zone. And uh, yes, I, I turned to step back to the field, and the horse uh, blindsided me and, and rammed me into the stadium wall. So it was it was uh, quite an adventure. I tell people, um, you know, at that time, I thought that would be the hardest hit I would ever take in my life. And I think that's the... Uh, the the benefit of being young and naive we don't we don't know that life happens and yeah. that, that it is a series of ups and downs but it taught me a lot about getting back up it taught me a lot about relying on people um i was i had you know short-term memory loss and some ongoing repercussions from my injuries for you know a few months and uh, it made me slow down it made me ask for help and those are really important things to remember when we're struggling i see and you know um i understand you're a part of a sorority and that's the only dirt that they were willing to share with me i, I asked for more dirt and that's, that's, <laughs> that's what i got so i was really disappointed to be honest with you I, well, David, just so you know, I thoroughly enjoyed my college experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lori, so you graduate and you have a business degree. Um, what's next? What's your first job out of college? What did you kind of uh, decide to do? Yes, I. So the same friends that brought me uh, to Dallas to look for something different um, had. They were the founders of a sports agency, and they actually represented professional athletes, primarily NBA basketball players, but they also represented players from the NFL as well. And sports was always my passion and my and my love. Being a pom-pom girl, I was always able to be close to all of the sports. My father was a big sports fan. Uh, as a, a, a girl, it was my way to be close to my father, to sit and watch sports and talk about, you know, golf and football and, and boxing and, and everything that he loved. And I really enjoyed it. So I, I interned for the firm when I was uh, in college and then ended up working for them after college. And I uh, represented three NBA players. Uh, in their rookie careers and the first two years of their careers and uh, securing endorsement contracts for them, shoe contracts, setting up personal appearances, helping them develop their own brand uh, in the league and, and distinguish themselves in the cities uh, where they became role models and uh, really, really enjoyed that work. Perfect. So, Lori, you know, like every good thing, we have to take a, a commercial break. Um, so I encourage uh, our listeners to open a new tab and go to www.lori-taylor.com. Lori is spelled L-A-U-R-I. Uh, and where you can learn more about Lori, the book, and register for her newsletter. We will meet you here on the other side of the commercials. <laughs> The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. 
To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D-I-V-I Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with my guest, Lori Taylor, uh, author of the book, The Accidental Truth, What My Mother's Murder Investigation Taught Me About Life. So, Lori, now that we, uh, you know, got to know you a little bit better and know that you love life and you love people, uh, let's go for to 2006. Let's go back in time to 2006. And um, can you share with us how, what happened there? What, what what was the message you got? What was the, the the news or the bad news you received, and, and how? Yes, absolutely, uh, David. Uh, it was a, simply a phone call. I got a phone call from my eldest sister, and she asked me if I had spoken to my mother lately, and I had not. And she said, we're concerned because she has not spoken to anyone and she's not shown up for a meeting that she was supposed to have for work. Uh, My sisters were concerned enough that they were traveling to her home in San Diego County and they were going to search her home. And they found her gone uh, and she had left her dogs without care, which for our mother, we knew was not a good sign. We j- often joked that she cared for her dogs more than she cared for her children. She would she would not leave them alone, uh, you know, without care. This was a, a red flag, you know, something that was uncharacteristic of her uh, normal behavior. I see. So she told you, uh, "We can't find mom," uh, and what what's next? My mother was missing for 10 days. Uh, the San Diego Sheriff's Office law enforcement was brought in and they declared her a missing person, which is difficult to do for adults. Adults can leave their own lives without, you know, question or without telling anyone uh, anytime they'd like. But uh, my mother had had a heart attack and so she had, you know, possible medical uh, questions. So they went ahead and declared her a missing person. And unfortunately, on the 11th day, her body was found in Baja, California, Mexico, uh, about 20 miles south of a little fishing village called San Felipe. And uh, they informed our family uh, that we needed to come to Mexico to identify her body, that she had died under unusual circumstances uh, and wouldn't tell us anything more until we arrived uh, in Mexico. And at that time, they told us that they believed that our mother had been murdered, had been beaten and strangled, and uh, the investigation began. And that was the Mexican police or the U.S. police? That is the Mexican police. We actually were phoned by the Mexican uh, district attorney down in that area and asked to come and uh, uh, spend, we spent three days, my sister and I spent three days identifying my mother's body and meeting with investigators uh, to begin the murder investigation there in Mexico. Um, A month later, uh, coordinated through the FBI, Mexican authorities came to the U.S. and with the help of the FBI and the California Department of Justice, we met with the San Diego Sheriff's Office and the investigation began in the States as a murder investigation um, in cooperation with the Mexican authorities. But Mexico had the jurisdiction because the uh, the murder they believe took place in Mexico. I see. And were you involved uh, from the start, or uh, you know, you gave the authorities, or you, uh, the family gave the authorities time uh, to do their own investigations uh, before you got involved? Yes, we you know we were we were raised to uh, respect and honor our you know our law enforcement, and we believed they would do everything in their power to find my mother's killer. And we learned very quickly that, unfortunately, murder is a business. And just like, you know, there are numbers that you have to meet in business budgets and, and numbers that you're held to in business, uh, in in the murder business, uh, detectives and law enforcement agencies are 
they're essentially evaluated on their solve rates. So they work on the cases and they pursue the cases that they believe are solvable. And it's understandable because every day after, you know, my mother's death, there's 10 more and then there's 10 more and, and the files pile up and they have to solve cases. So they're going to work the cases that are the most solvable. So having my mother's case, you know, happen in another country, we had, you know, not only did we have four law enforcement bodies trying to work on a case, we had jurisdictional issues, we had language issues, we had bureaucracy at the border because of, you know, the, the um, you know, border uh, security a- uh, after 9-11 became very, very tight and the um, working relationship between the two countries at the border was very difficult. Um, so we had a lot of hurdles and our case very quickly within six months, uh, they let go inactive, which meant it became a cold case. No one would be actively investigating my mom's case and that was at the time when I determined for myself and, and, and for my sisters as well that we needed, we had to have an answer. We had to have closure. And if we were going to get one, we were going to be pursuing it and, and pushing this investigation ourselves. And um, that's when I, I stepped in. I see. And, and during those six months, that investigation was uh, not a cold case, a hot case, well, let's call it. Um, what kind of, how, how did the family react? What was, I'm sure that you had, uh, each one of you had theories and diff- different theories and, and, and kind of directions. Did you kind of try to find a, a finger point who can be, you know, uh, blamed for this uh, murder? Yes, absolutely. And and uh, one of the things uh, that happens in, in this instance is that you become highly suspicious of everyone and, and that, you know, everyone was a suspect until someone was ruled out and law enforcement was very slow to investigate and question my mother's coworkers, my mother's friends. And so it was a very difficult time for, for our family. My sisters and I, I, I'm very proud to say that we were very much on the same page in terms of, our uh, commitment to stay together, our commitment to keep each other informed. Um, we were suspicious of, of everyone, though. Uh, everywhere we looked, we, we wondered um, if that person had something to do with, you know, with our mother's death. If, you know, um, there, were, there were people who were very, very suspicious around my mother who were immediately knew something was wrong with her before we knew something was wrong with her. Even people who pointed to Mexico as a possibility. Um, it was something I tried to do in the book. I tried to give the readers a sense of um, every different line that you try to pursue in an investigation and you end up in a rabbit hole because there's only one answer. And, and we had many, many different directions that we were, we were pushed in, in terms of our suspicions and, um, and uh, curiosity about who might have committed the crime. Um, there's also another thing that happens. Um, very quickly, you are in, you're grieving. So we're, we're grieving the loss of our mother, which um, has physical symptoms, which makes you have lack of focus, which makes you have a lack of, of, of clarity and, and, uh, and vision. So it's a, it's a, a confusing and, a, and, and upsetting time. Uh, but we tr- all tried to remain very focused on the details of the investigation of the, of the timeline. Uh, and I became hyper-focused myself on the details of the case, on knowing every, uh, you know, every detail, every question that had been asked and answered, and every question that had not yet been asked and, and answered, and quickly became the point person on the case. I found it, um, for me, it gave me a reason to, to wake up every morning, to make phone calls, to email, to, to get through um, that very difficult period. Um, so during those uh, six months that uh, you gave the authority the time, um, what did they share with you? Did they keep you in the dark or did they share with you a lot of information with the family, with you specifically? 
right out of the right out of the gate, David, they had within a month of my mother's body being discovered at, at the first and really only big meeting where we had where all of the authorities were in one room in San Diego from Mexico and from the U.S. They had a composite sketch of a suspect, and much to my family's surprise, the suspect was a woman. And uh, we had been told at one point by the news media that authorities in Mexico were pursuing a a male suspect in Mexico City. But they presented at this meeting this uh, composite sketch of this woman. And I didn't recognize the person as anyone that who whom I knew. But my sisters recognized the person or believed they recognized the person as my mother's cleaning lady a woman that she was very friendly with, a woman that cleaned her home, that, that helped her in her, in her businesses, uh, cleaned the businesses. And um, this woman became the focus of the investigation. Uh, I have to say that the U.S. authorities were in conflict, uh, had conflicted opinion about this suspect. They did not believe that this woman could be my mother's cleaning lady, while the authorities in Mexico were entirely convinced. Uh, In fact, so convinced that they went through the process of getting the permission to come to the U.S. to to question her. And when they questioned her, uh, she was actually wearing a shirt that the composite artist, uh, sketch artist, had had captured um, this image of her. They, They were honestly blown away by the likeness between the composite sketch and her, you know, her appearance in person. So Mexico was convinced that this woman absolutely knew something about my mother's death or had something to do with my mother's death. Well, well, San Diego Sheriff's Office was not convinced in the least. So they began to drag their feet um, in questioning and pursuing this line of investigation. And um, that often happens in investigations. Uh, investigators get one idea in mind about the line of, of, of the investigation and they, they don't look outside of the box. They only pursue the line to the end that they wish to seek. And um, unfortunately, that um, it led them nowhere and hence the, the closing of the case essentially in the U.S., I see. So uh, let's uh, kind of uh, stop with the investigation for a second, uh, the authority, and let's go back to Lori. So six months go by, uh, it becomes a cold case. What made you decide that you need to, and and that you can investigate such a mystery? I uh, honestly, David, there are a couple of things. One is my my personal guilt. Guilt was a motivator, uh, and this happens oftentimes to victims of uh, you know families of you know victims of violent crime. Uh, we believe, illogically as it may be, uh, that there's something that we could have done to prevent the murder. I had a a, a complicated relationship with my mom. Um, and at the time of her death, I hadn't spoken to her in a few months, so my, my guilt was was raging. Um, I should have, could have done something to prevent this from happening to my mom. So that was one of the motivating factors. The other factor was um, we had a cold case detective who was particularly cavalier in his attitude. I We felt, as you know, as women, you know, um, I understand that, you know, there is a thing called empathy fatigue, and maybe he was suffering from that, having been an investigator for a long time, but this was our mother, and we were not going to accept anything short of resolution and an answer, and um, nine months before my mother went missing, there was a very big case in the U.S. where a young woman, Natalie Holloway, went to Aruba for a high school graduation party, and she was murdered there, and her body was never found. And this was what our family looked to. You know, we had seen this family on television, you know, every holiday, every, you know, every meaningful date, just in despair. And we couldn't imagine living like that. And that was very motivating to me. I was determined to have closure for my family. We had lost our mother. We weren't getting her back. But closure was important for our moving forward and for our sanity. Did your sisters give you full support on your decision to get into the investigations? 
They did. And I, I was, it, it was an odd, uh, there was some serendipity involved, David, in me getting involved in the case. Uh, I had, uh, I was only working part-time doing consulting work in my sports marketing. I was fortunate. My husband uh, was successful in his business, so I got to stay home with my children. Uh, my Spanish uh, minor from college served me well because I could communicate and develop relationships in Mexico. Um, and I was the closest to the border. I was the, the one living, you know, physically closest to San Diego and, and, and Mexico. So I was available often and I was, and, and I, I, I couldn't not be involved in the case. So they, they all had, uh, full-time jobs and obligations and lived farther away and, they trusted me with it, which was a big step. Uh, being the youngest, sort of the dynamics of the family, the personal dynamics, mm-hmm. uh, this was a big vote of confidence for me. And really, um, I wanted to do it not only for myself, but I really, really wanted to do it for them as well. So um, I have one more question before we go to the second commercial break. Um, so you decide to get into an investigation. What were the first steps you took? The first steps, you know, uh, I think I, I drew on a bit on my uh, on my my business and marketing background, and I reached out to every person I could personally through email and phone contacts. I wrote letters, uh, and one of the things that we did was uh, we lobbied to have the case reopened through our local congressman, through go- our uh, government, so, so through through family and business contacts, and we were granted an appeal uh, to meet with law enforcement in San Diego to argue um, our right to have our case reopened by the San Diego Sheriff's Office. I, I knew that any answers for the case were going to come through law enforcement. I wasn't, I wasn't going to find them without the help of law enforcement. So I didn't want to alienate law enforcement as much as I was, uh, you know, upset that they weren't uh, pursuing my mom's case. I knew that I needed to step beyond that and, and befriend them and push them and, and know that I, we weren't going away, that we would be calling and we would be checking up and, and that's what we did. We were granted this uh, appeal through the congressman's office. And uh, my sisters and I spoke. I spoke, actually represented my family. And the sheriff of, Orn- of uh, pardon me, San Diego County uh, determined that we made our case and they reopened the investigation. Um, and you got some help, uh, an outside help, right? Correct. Eventually, uh, two years in, after the case had stalled repeatedly, I was watching a television show, uh, and there was a woman, um, a very famous FBI profiler named Candace DeLong, and she has two uh, television shows on investigation discovery. She's a very, very revered uh, expert, and I decided I would reach out to her. I had uh, been working uh, with a lot of men in law enforcement, and I thought, you know, um, maybe I would try my luck and see about some female energy, and it was a long shot. I reached out through her literary agent. She's a published author as well, and uh, much to my surprise, her literary agent emailed me back with her personal contact uh, information. I reached out to to Candace through email, and the first question she asked me was, "Where did you get my personal email?" Which was a <laughs> which was a, a, a small victory for a novice uh, investigator that I'd gotten the personal email of an FBI profiler, uh, and she questioned me, and I think she admired it. So, which was a, a great start to our our what ended up being has ended up being a wonderful friendship, but uh, began as a working relationship. It took me about a month of of emailing and sharing correspondence and information about the case. And she, uh, I convinced her to work with me, uh, to consult with me on the case. And uh, she said to me, you know, um, I've worked on cases and families did not like the answer that I gave them. It wasn't what they wanted or what they expected. And she said, quite honestly, the last family I worked for uh, didn't pay me tens of thousands of dollars uh, in, in, uh, money that I had earned. And what I told her, I said, if you agree to work with me, you're the expert and I will accept whatever you tell me as the truth. That is my promise. She oh, said, wow. okay. 
Laurie, we reached our second commercial break. Uh, to our listeners, when you open a new tab at uh, laurie-taylor.com, don't forget to follow her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We will be back following the commercials. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com again that's jeff spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com voice america is where you are and where you want to be join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available don't forget to view all our live events including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. tuned into Taking Care of Business with David Wallach. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to dvwallach at gmail.com. That's D-I-V-I Wallach at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with my guest, Lori Taylor, author of the book, The Accidental Truth. So, Lori, before we kind of, uh, this is the last segment of today's show. So, before we go in to more questions, um, where is the book sold? Thank you for asking, David. It's available on Amazon and, and wherever books are sold. All independent bookstores um, and the major retailers, Barnes & Noble, etc. carry it. If you go to lori-taylor.com. Uh, all the information is there for finding the book wherever you'd like to purchase it. Thank you. Um, and the reason I asked is because I don't want us to uh, disclose the the end of the story on uh, my show. What I want to kind of explore with you now is a few things on, on what happened to you during uh, the, process the process of the investigation. And um, well, the first thing I want to uh, kind of read is something that uh, your partner, uh, Candice DeLong, wrote about you. Thank you. And I'm quoting, when I was was first contacted by Lori Taylor about investigating her mother's unsolved murder, I remember being skeptical. FBI profilers have a well-developed sense of skepticism. My first impression was that Lori was in way over her head. So what do you have to say about that? <laughs> were you over? Were you way over your head when you got into this? Absolutely. What was I thinking? Uh, well, first of all, I wasn't thinking because I was in the midst of uh, of terrible grief. So we'll go there first. Um, I was in over my head. I'd never worked with law enforcement. I didn't know anything about investigations beyond, uh, you know, watching CSI on on television and you know enjoying that. Uh, but I was determined and I you know, mentioned earlier about, you know, my mom instilling that belief, whatever I, I imagine I can be, I can be. So illogical or not, I imagined I could be a murder investigator and solve my mother's case. So um, 
You know, I have a few questions that are kind of around the the, the investigation, and 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 um, one of the topics that you wanted to discuss was things happen for a reason. What did you mean by that when you sent me that when we did our research about you? Yes, uh, it's an interesting thing, David. When when families are grieving, uh, you know, people struggle for what to say. I've I've been there myself, standing at a a funeral, and you want to say something meaningful to someone, and people would say to me, you know. Things happen for a reason. Um, this happened for a reason. And, and in my mind, I couldn't think of any logical reason, any uh, reason that would justify, you know, my mother dying this way and, 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 you know, not dying peacefully in her bed with her, you know, loving family, sur- you know, surrounding her. What I tell people that I discovered on this journey was finding reason and purpose in our losses. We're all going to you know, experience them. We don't get through this life lifetime unscathed. We will all experience loss and grief. And but I tell people that you know, accepting what is the difficulty of, of you know we can't change what has happened. We can only move forward. And in finding purpose in my mother's uh, death, in writing the book, in in helping people through their grief journeys, um, it helps me through my own. And uh, and and that's why I tell people there is there is hope, you know, after loss. We uh, we don't forget our loved ones, we don't lose those memories, we just lose our attachment to them. It helps you know, letting go helps us free us up to move forward. Um Lori I can't uh, we have some issues uh, kind of uh, hearing you. Can you get closer to the mic? Can you hear me now? Yes, now it's way better. Okay. Um so, you know, it's four years that it, uh, the investigation took about four years, I understand. That's correct. Um, and what went through your mind and during, during those uh, four years, uh, mental or, or, or obstacles that you had to go through personally when it's such a long time and you're probably in a snail pace progress what did you feel? What went through your mind? What was the process that you had personally to go through? David, the the hardest part was the ups and downs. And I think that's, that is just, that is life. And it's uh, getting back up after you think you're at a place where you're, you, you have an answer and you're going to solve the case. And then, you know, law enforcement comes back and says, all of the evidence in Mexico has been lost. So you're starting from point A again. Um, it's just about getting back up, and and not and never giving up. Um, perseverance and tenacity, uh, I think, are the key. You know, um, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, and eventually you'll get there. I see. Um, as as I said earlier, we're not going to do, disclose uh, what the end result was. We're encouraging people to read the book. Um, but when you got the end result, what was um, your feeling and how did you communicate to the family and what was their reaction? So um, Candace and I worked together very, very closely and we were able to get evidence, key evidence, uh, analyzed by a very dear friend of Candace's, Dr. Michael Bodden, who's a world-renowned forensic pathologist. He worked on the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing man. And he came back with the answer about um, about my mother's death. And um, there was never going to be a good answer. But this answer, which I call the accidental truth, wasn't an answer that I was expecting nor my family was expecting. Um, but it was closure and, and for that, I was grateful. I ended up because I had worked so closely on the investigation. I put together a notebook for each of my three sisters containing all of the physical evidence, all the lists about the circumstantial evidence and all of the scientific evidence, uh, based on Candace's assessment and Dr. Bodden's assessment and presented it to my family. And I have to say they were quite shocked as well by the answer. Um, you know, we had all spent four hard years grieving our mother's death and this was another 
thing that we needed to move through and that we needed to process and grieve. But at the end of the day, everyone was thankful for the closure. Everyone was thankful for an answer. Um, like I said, it was never going to be a good answer. Um, we weren't, you know, going to throw a parade through town um, because we'd found a murderer. So mm-hmm. um, I, I tell people, um, you know, the truth uh, is hard to face, but the truth is is absolutely freeing, um, you know, once you accept it. Um, you know, through this process of four years, uh, you have two kids. And how did they react? How did they kind of look at their mom being an investigator and during, going through all this hardship to try to find her mother's murderer? How did your kids react during those four years? What did they... My kids were were young, and it's one of the reasons I decided to write a book. Um, All four years of my son's high school uh, were consumed by this investigation, and uh, my daughter is two years younger, and they were very, very supportive. They're compassionate kids. They they saw the the pain that in anguish that my sisters and I were going through. They were in pain themselves, Um, but probably the greatest transformation that they saw was. Um, their mother taking the bull by the horns, using my voice and speaking, and then going and writing a book was the ultimate, uh, you know, expression of of using my voice uh, for myself and, and and for my family and and for good, and hoping that sharing our family's story uh, would help others on you know difficult journeys of of, of grief and loss. And um, they were very very supportive and very proud um, when my book was released. Uh, I wrote the book initially because I wanted to preserve the history for them. I thought it very important that they have that history and um, they both uh, are writers themselves and they read and, uh, and they're very proud of the work. Laurie, the subtitle you gave to your book is what my mother's murder investigation taught me about life. So can you share with us one of the lessons that you've learned through uh, this journey? Yes, thank you. There, there were many. Um, what I, what I tell people, um, particularly people who were living their own difficult journeys, is you know, um, people generally do not change or transform from a place of comfort. You're comfortable, so you stay. You know, you remain doing whatever you know it is that you do. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, difficult times transform us. We, we learn who we are. We, uh, you know, we change and adapt, uh, to adjust to situations. And, um, and I'm, I, it's one of the things I'm very proud of in retrospect. Um, I'm proud of who I am. I'm, I am who I am as a result of, you know, learning from my, you know, my parents, from my mother and father, um, working hard and not giving up and, um, and, looking back at that, the investigative journey and the journey of writing a book and, and all, um, I believe that it, it changed me in, in many, many important, uh, ways. I had lost my voice and speaking up for my mother and asking questions on my mother's behalf and my family's behalf. I, I regained that voice and, uh, and then I regained confidence. Uh, the more I, you know, I reached out and, and people validated, you know, my, my ability in uh, working in an investigation with Candace, you know, at one point she said, you know, talking with you is talking like a, with a fellow, you know, FBI profiler. And, uh, <laughs> that, that was a long way to come from, she's in a way over her head. So, um, you know, very p- proud of those transformations. And I tell people, you know, um, you know, that that is one of the, the blessings that come from difficult times is we're changed in, in ways that we never would have been changed had we not lived through them. Lori, we have about 45 seconds, uh, and I have one question. What have you learned about yourself during this journey? Oh, thank you. Um, that I, I don't give up easily. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm naturally competitive. Uh, I'm, I'm learning the sport of golf, and uh, it's not going to conquer me either. So um, what I put my mind to, um, I'm going to work very hard at being successful at, and, and I am proud of that. Um, should we accept, expect book number two shortly? 
Uh, absolutely. I, I'm fortunate. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving on Thursday uh, to work with a wonderful woman. I'm going to a, a writer's uh, retreat over in France uh, with a wonderful woman named Karen Carbo. She's a New York Times bestseller uh, to vet a new idea for a book um, somewhat related to uh, to my book, The Accidental Truth. Not a sequel, if you will, but um, but uh, an offshoot because of some of those lessons that I talked about uh, that I learned that I might like to share. So we should expect another mystery and another investigation book. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's not a bad place to go to France to do a retreat. Uh, I can tell you that. I've been there a few times. <laughs> oh, I'll, be, I'll definitely be inspired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. And uh, spending money as well. And on, uh, <laughs> um, Laurie, you know, we reached the end of today's uh, show of Taking Care of Business. I want to thank you for being my guest and sharing your family story. It was a pleasure having you, as well as very interesting to learn how far you were willing to go in order to solve and understand what has happened to your mother. Um, I wish and hope uh, that your next book will be about good and happy life experiences. Uh, next week, my guest is Chad Hughes, President and CEO of Land Solutions and a participant in the Purpose, Passion and Profit book that was published earlier this year. Thank you all uh, for your emails. Uh, I got some great, great recommendations and feedback. Uh, please keep emailing me on uh, uh, email me at dvwallach at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. And, of course, LinkedIn. And uh, as usual, thank you, Aaron, our dedicated engineer for solving all our issues today. And Sasha, my uh, assistant executive producer. I'll meet you here at voiceamerica.com slash variety next Tuesday, September 25th, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific. Your host, David Wallach. Thank you for listening to Taking Care of Business. Please join David Wallach again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, make your week as great as you want it.